studying Dogen's Mountains and Rivers Sutra. We read it Sutra that Kenyo led, and yesterday Kisei-sensei led us in a day-long retreat with mountains and rivers as the theme. And I'm going also to talk about this sutra. But before I do, I would like to lead us in a short mountain meditation. So you're welcome to close your eyes. We can begin by straightening up and settling into the body and the breath. If you're sitting in a chair, feeling the feet against the floor, feeling your seat against the floor. Feeling the weight of the body settling into the lower abdomen, the legs. In an interesting but relevant aside, continuing with your meditation practice, I heard a story on NPR the other day. Physically heavier pigeons are higher up on the pecking order in their flock, and pigeons that weigh less are less confident and lower down in the ranks. But give a lightweight pigeon a weighted backpack, and confidence rises and the birds gain esteem within their flock. Take the backpacks off and the lightweight pigeons return to their lower ranks. So in this meditation practice, you're invited to try on the mountain backpack. The weightiness and confidence that a mountain offers. And perhaps not the conceptual ideas of weight and confidence, 
but the felt sense, the embodied experience of sitting like a mountain. Expanding your awareness out beyond the confines of your own body. The felt experience of feeling into the earth below you, to the sides of you. If the mind is crowded, see if you can physically feel the sensation of draining the brain of thought, allowing your awareness to gather in your low abdomen. Continuing to explore the experience of weightiness, of groundedness. When the lightweight pigeons put on their weighted backpacks, it increased their level of imperturbability. We can draw on the mountain's imperturbability and make it our own. And unlike the pigeons, we have a choice now. We've been given this mountain mind and we don't need to take it off.
So if you like keeping your eyes closed, if you like opening them, maintaining a mountain mind. I know that the residents have heard this sutra many times, but those of you on live stream haven't. So I'll read a part of it to get us all acquainted and to let the people on the live stream hear this flavor of Dogen's poetry. Water is neither strong nor weak, neither wet nor dry, neither moving nor still, neither hot nor cold, neither existent nor non-existent, neither deluded nor enlightened. All beings do not see mountains and rivers in the same way. Some beings see water as a jeweled ornament, and some beings see water as wondrous blossoms. Hungry ghosts see water as raging fire, and dragons see water as a palace or pavilion. Some beings see water as a wish-fulfilling jewel, and some see it as the Dharma nature of true liberation the true human body, or as the form of, es of body and essence of mind. Human beings only see water as water. Water is seen as dead or alive, depending upon the mind of the beholder. Thus, the views of all beings are not the same. Do not limit your view to that of human beings. There are many ways to see one thing and ways to see many things seen as one. You should pursue this beyond the limits of pursuit. Endeavors in the practice realization of the way are not limited to one or two kinds. The ultimate realm has 1,000 kinds and 10,000 ways. Buddha said, all things are ultimately liberated. There is nowhere they abide. You should know that even though all things are liberated and not tied to anything, they abide in their own phenomenal expression. When most human beings see water, they only see that it flows unceasingly. This is a limited human view. There are many kinds of flowing. Water flows on the earth, in the sky, upwards and downwards. It can flow around a single curve or into many bottomless abysses. When it rises, it becomes clouds. When it descends, it forms abysses. Water is not concerned with past, future, present, or the phenomenal world. Even in a drop of water, innumerable Buddha lands appear. Ordinary people think that water is always in rivers or oceans, but this is not so. Rivers and oceans exist in water. Even where there is not a river or an ocean, there is water. It is just that when water falls to the ground, it manifests as rivers and oceans. 
Where Buddha ancestors reach, water never fails to appear. Because of this, Buddha ancestors take up water and make it their body and mind, make it their thought. Because of this, Buddha ancestors take up water and make it their body and mind, make it their thought. You can see how each line of the sutra can be very carefully explored, perhaps for a whole lifetime, and explored not necessarily with our conceptual mind, but with our lived experience. So now I sit up here, and however clumsily we'll talk about my own experience, this dream I call my life, where mountains and rivers acts as, act as guides into the nether reaches of wonder and awe. A good teacher knows that she can best serve her students not by feeding them answers, but by guiding them towards the most interesting questions. In Zen, we are asked to live into these questions with an open, not-knowing mind, with no hope of an answer. One of the mottos of my colleges, which is similar, was teaching students not what to learn, but how to learn. How to learn. teaching students how to be curious. And for some of us as adults, rediscovering the simplicity of childlike wonder. In the Mountains and River Sutra, Dogen says, do not limit your views to that of human beings. When we limit our views to that of human beings, we are limiting our capacity for the truly interesting questions. It, limits, it limit, limits us to a mind that would prefer to rest only on the things it knows and understands, or believes that it knows and understands. A mountain can be a good teacher in this way, expanding our view beyond that of human beings. There is nothing like getting caught in tumultuous weather on a long hike to reorient the mind away from its petty grievances and towards the more fundamental questions like what is the meaning of my life or what am I? A river can also draw these questions forward. Have you ever waded into a swiftly moving river and felt the subtle thrill as the water tugs persistently at your body, pushing against you and around you with unrelenting flow? The river as a teacher directing you to more interesting questions, the river presenting you with the story of your life, flowing, changing, and impermanent. Each moment completely new.
almost every day at the monastery, and we'll close today's talk with them. We chant the four great bodhisattva vows. Impossible, beautiful vows that live on from generation to generation. I would like to pause and consider the third vow, Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. What a glorious promise. The promise of the boundlessness of the gates themselves and the promise to enter them. In this universe of boundless time and space, how could we impose a limit on Dharma gates? But most importantly, can we believe it? And what are the implications of living a life with such a vow? Each moment a gift, each moment completely new. Enter here, this whole world is calling us to presence. But if everything is a Dharma gate, why are there so many poems particular to mountains and rivers? On this matter, I was handed an interesting koan when I first arrived at Great Vow, one that I still ponder from Yerzi, one of our longtime Sangha members. It goes like this. Eat a cookie, dig a hole, no difference. No difference. One continuous practice, awareness that is not contingent upon circumstance. Whether I'm swimming in a river on a hot summer day or getting ready for bed, one taste, one practice, seamless awareness. Awareness that is not contingent upon circumstance. A very interesting exploration into the nature of mind. I can't say that I understand it, but the brochure looks very nice. But in this talk, I'm not so interested in the particulars of why mountains and rivers have such great powers of persuasion. I will just trust that they do. Yesterday, during the retreat, Kisei Sensei sweetened our zazen practice with the poetry of the hermit Cold Mountain. And this particular poem that I would like to read tugged on my heartstrings enough to make me want to read it aloud again. And I'm a big fan of David White, so I like to read poems a little bit like he reads them by repeating the lines. A mountain dweller with a wilting heart often sighs as years move on. 
He looks hard for a miraculous mushroom, but even if he finds it, how can he become an immortal? A mountain dweller with a wilting heart often sighs as the years move on. He looks hard for a miraculous mushroom, but even if he finds it, how can he become an immortal? His grounds are spacious, the clouds start to swirl. Over the forest, the bright moon is round. Why doesn't he leave? Why doesn't he leave? The fragrant cassia keeps him where he is. I grew up in my backyard. I like to think of the rose bushes and the grapevines as that we tended as my first Dharma teachers. And in particular, each year we would seed a garden bed with a wildflower mix. I have very fond memories of that bed. I would anxiously watch the seedlings push their way through the soil, soaking up the water and sun, blooming in the heat of summer and fading away again as fall approached. A young girl with a wilted heart often sighs as the years move on. my first lessons in impermanence. My first Dharma teachers and friends belonged to the plant world. I admired their patience and steadiness and beauty despite everything. Despite everything, they bloomed each year. In the Mountains and Rivers Sutra, Dogen says, do not limit your views to that of human beings. This asks us to trust in a language beyond words. When I limit my view to that of human beings, I see plants and the natural world as a thing outside of myself. I do not allow them, the flowers and the trees, their own vibrant life. Quoting the Mountains and Rivers Sutra again, this view is just like looking through a bamboo tube at the corner of the sky. Before I began formal sitting practice, my connection with a more open, spacious mind came from time spent in nature. And by nature, I mean out in the quiet, mingling with trees and sky and dirt. It offered important insights. I noticed how much more pliable the mind became when I was surrounded by trees. And if 
I did bring my churning, worried mind into the forest with me. It had nothing to project against. My social anxieties would loosen and dissolve when projected out into the forest floor. I noticed that the moss was indifferent to my plight, and this was a great relief. It does not fear me or love me or doubt me. And we can just be together like that with nothing to lose. In the forest, my carefully personality becomes irrelevant. Especially when I was in high school and college where the demarcations of the right music to listen to and the right clothing to wear felt so deplorably important. To venture into a quiet park where these worldly affairs became obsolete concerns was sweet relief. And here's a poem by Mary Oliver to further honor this point. It's called Storage. When I moved from one house to another, there were many things I had no room for. What does one do? I rented a storage space and it filled. Years passed. Occasionally, I went there and looked in. But nothing happened, not a single twinge of the heart. As I grew older, the things I cared about grew fewer, but were more important. As I grew older, the things I cared about were fewer, but were more important. So one day I undid the lock and called the trash man. He took everything. I felt like the little donkey when her burden is finally lifted. Things, burn them, burn them, make a beautiful fire. Make room in your heart for love, for the trees, for the birds who own nothing, the reason they can fly. Mountains and rivers offer us these insights. I remember many years ago, before I had done any formal meditation practice, going on a very long hike the kind where you go up and up and up and think that you've made it only to realize that you are then going to descend down and down and down across creeks through the ravine only to return to an even steeper ascent before finally reaching the summit. I was very tired at the top, but we'd made it. And of course, after working so hard, the view is all the more spectacular. A vast open view of bright sky, mountains all around, and the ocean with its own palette of blues and grays meeting the sky in the distant horizon. It's times like these when wonder and awe are allowed to linger and the ego stands momentarily at bay. And in that moment, my heart opened, 
I looked out at the boundless sky and saw that everything was forgiven. I looked out at the boundless sky and saw, if only momentarily, that I had more options than I thought around how to view this life. Everything is forgiven. Put another way, when we do not limit our views to that of human beings, the story we call our past, present, and future life loosens its grip, its grip and our definition of reality softens. Insights are often significant because they can be like throwing a large wrench into the cogs of the machinery we call our suffering. Suddenly the world I thought I knew pivots and unexpectedly my story of reality is thrown into violent contrast with some new and starkly different view. And insights can be fleeting. My version of reality on top of that mountain had been called deeply into question, but with this mind so habituated to a certain mode of being, as I traveled back down the mountain, my muscles worn, my body aching, I did not know how to live into it. Everything is forgiven. My conceptual mind could not fathom what that meant and also did not trust that a more spacious, open heart could actually function in real time. I had momentarily opened up to sky mind. I'd put on the mountain backpack and it shuddered again. I descended the mountain back into my life, confused and wilted, believing I had lost that openness forever. But a delicate flame had been kindled and I kept it secretly lit. I explored more mountains, looked to the sky for answers, and those mountains, that mountain, those wildflowers I had tended as a child drew me here and into this life of practice. The wildflowers in their fleeting beauty and courage brought me to practice. Because I wanted to know their view. Perhaps that is a common thread in the human experience. We have an opening, however small, into the nature of mind, something that allows us to see that there is so much more interesting things than the mind of I, me, and mine. And then we go in search of it. I have a David White poem. And it had a word I didn't know that I looked up. I think you pronounce it wraith. W-R-A-I. Okay, wraith means a wisp or a faint trace of something. 
Be infinitesimal under that sky, a creature even the sailing hawk misses, a wraith among the rocks where the mist parts slowly. Recall the way mere mortals are overwhelmed by circumstance, how great reputations dissolve with infirmity, how great reputations dissolve with infirmity, and how you, in particular, stand a hair's breadth from losing everything you hold dear, and how you, in particular, stand a hair's breadth from losing everyone you hold dear. Then look back down the path to the north, the way you came, as if seeing your entire past, and then south over the hazy blue coast as if present to a broad future. Remember the way you are all possibilities Remember the way you are all possibilities. You can see and how you live best as an appreciator of horizons. How you live best as an appreciator of horizons, whether you reach them or not. Admit that once you have got up from your chair and opened the door, once you have walked out into the clean air toward that edge, once you have walked out into the clean air toward that edge and taken the path up high beyond the ordinary, you have become the privileged and the pilgrim, the one who will tell the story and the one coming back from the mountain who helped to make it. Thank you. We'll close with the four great bodhisattva vows.